Today's show is brought to you by HANA. For the past few years, I've been taking HANA One, an all-natural daily superfood with 30 wild-harvested herbs and adaptogens to improve focus, boost immunity, and increase stamina. HANA also sources the purest, highest-quality ashwagandha and turmeric. To get 20% off your first purchase, visit HANA.com, that's H-A-N-A-H.com, and enter the code CHAMPION20. Hello and welcome to the Champion Conversations podcast, where my co-host, sports psychologist Jim Aframo, and I take you inside the mental game of high performers. If you've ever wanted to learn how elite athletes, coaches, creators, and entrepreneurs use their mindset to overcome setbacks, serve as great leaders and teammates, and achieve their full potential, then you've come to the right place. I'm Phil White, and we're glad you're listening today. Today's guest is Gabby Reese. While playing volleyball at Florida State University, Gabby was also traveling the world as a fashion model. She went on to play on the Pro Beach Volleyball Tour and then became an entrepreneur alongside her husband, surfer Laird Hamilton, who we featured in an earlier episode of this show. Gabby is also the proud parent of three girls, hosts The Gabby Reese Show, and is the author of the best-selling books My Foot is Too Big for the Glass Slipper and Big Girl in the Middle. So Gabby, um, I'm curious, with growing up, you've mentioned before that the kind of parental expectations maybe were a bit different to today when it seems to be almost an arms race between sports parents to see who can get their kids in the most things possible. Could you just give us a little bit of that background and kind of what your experience was uh, growing up? You know, for me, it was really different. First of all, growing up, the meat of my childhood was in the Virgin Islands. So Organized athletics wasn't quite as what it is, obviously, not only in the United States at that time, but just now, especially. Um, so I didn't grow up with that type of, um, you know, shuttling from practice to practice. I, I dabbled in volleyball and um, I would catch a ride with the coach and, you know, nobody really knew what I was doing, really. Um, and, uh, and then when I moved to my junior year in Florida, then I moved uh, – to Florida my junior year from the Caribbean. And that was a little more structured, you know, and because I was six, three, they were like, Oh, you're gonna play basketball. And, uh, and then I sort of got deeper into volleyball. Um, and that was a little more, you could feel like I'd have uh, parents of people I played with that would be at practice and certainly at every game, which always was very unusual for me. I, no one really from my side, you know, did that. And I didn't really want them to, to be honest. Um, and so from that experience, I chose volleyball and then ended up going to Florida State, uh, m- much to my surprise, on, a, on an athletic scholarship for volleyball. And I, maybe my mom came to one of my college games, one or two. Um, and even in the pros, you know, it wasn't like a – so I, I don't know. It was just a really different um, personal experience. And what what I would say that I have observed is, and 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 everybody knows the statistics: one percent of all high school athletes will go to college on an athletic scholarship. One percent. One percent of those athletes, maybe even a little less, will play professionally, and that's play professionally. And and when I say play professionally, you will have a handful of sports that people will make a real living. And then even if you do a lifestyle sport like I did it's basically a job that's really cool, but it's not going to be what you retire on. And so I, I always am so intrigued. Now, the thing that makes sense to me is if you have a kid who loves a sport and they have an opportunity to get an athletic scholarship and get an education in college, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and a lot of the rest kind of doesn't. And actually if the person isn't genuinely into what they're doing, None of it makes sense because um, if you're their parent, I always tell my girls, I'm your mom. I'm not your coach. It's a different role. And I'm trying to help them as a support them in all facets as a human being, not, um, you know, well, you're successful if, you know, you're sort of in your athletic endeavors. I don't think that is necessarily connected to what our roles are as parents necessarily. I mean, there's an element of that, but I think it's a, a, I think there's a lot to it about supporting the person. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, with your personality type, was it kind of better to have your entry into sports be that way, do you think? The, the way it was for you growing up? Yeah, I think if I get feel pushed by somebody, I by na- by more of a nature, unless I've invited them to, like a coach, where it's like, hey, once I come into this gym, then you're the leader. And I'm actually very coachable and very compliant. But I, I'm typically only compliant once I agree that this is where I want to be. So I think if I felt like if I had parents just pushing me and it was their idea versus my idea, I don't know that I would have pursued it. Um, part, my pursuit was the joy of the exploration of, of learning my own relationship with the sport I was in and loving the learning and the improvement and feeling like I wasn't done with that relationship after college. So I think it, for me, it was different. Um, cause weirdly, like I'm so, I'm like a really good soldier, but I, it first, I have to arrive at saying, I believe in this cause. And so I think it was really good for me that nobody, it was my thing. Yeah. For you sure. said, yeah, you said you were surprised a little bit about uh, getting a full scholarship to Florida State. Um, t- tell us about that a little bit. Well, like I said, I dabbled a little, like in sixth grade, I remember, and then maybe a little bit um, in junior high, and then again a little bit in uh, maybe t- ninth or tenth grade. But it was, you know, I wasn't not particularly good, very good. And just to give you a snapshot of it, I played two club tournaments, two, two. And there was a club in Tampa that was run by a, a couple that had been married, but uh, separated one coach Berkeley prep, one coach Tampa prep, two very strong schools, a little more affluent, very good athletic programs. They used to be married, but they did have, um, they separated, but they had this incredible program. And so their names um, were the D'Agostinos. And I was so late to volleyball that a few weeks before I went to Florida state because of my height, it was going to be that I was most likely going to be a middle blocker. Randy D'Agostino was kind enough and said to me, you know, uh, you probably should learn some middle blocking steps uh, before you head up there. And, and uh, cause there's a sort of specific way you cross your feet over to shut a block and to kind of be efficient and be stay balanced and such. And uh, so I was like really learning on the fly mm. and it just wasn't, that wasn't my trajectory. Like, The amount that I changed from the age, let's say, of my junior year, the beginning of my junior year to the end of my junior year, I became like a different person. And so it was all a a real um, discovery for me. Yeah. What was the the culture shock like going from island life to, to mainland Florida? Yeah, in a very conservative Christian school. So from like freewheeling Caribbean, um, you know, at first I was really mad and then it ended up being the greatest thing that could have happened to me at that time. It, 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 it completely changed the trajectory of my life. And I had some people step in. I had a family, um, my head coaches, my basketball coach, uh, Dean souls used to just try to tell me, Hey, get along with your mom. And, um, I had a boyfriend, Jeff Sandhoff, who really was very good in athletics and sort of straight living and him and his family were, you know, he drove me to a BC basketball camp 13 hours away. And like, um, I was really cute, but, um, anyway, I'm joking. Um, and my principal of my school, I had, I lived with him and his family for a few months, my senior year. Um, so there was just some people, some real pivotal people, but it, it just reminded me there was other ways to live in life, you know, than I had been doing in the Caribbean and it, and it maybe put instilled something in me that I, I could be better. I could be a better human being. I could spend my time more valuably. And um, athletics made me feel like that was uh, worthwhile. Like I was, t- it was time well spent. Yeah. What was the, what was the transition to, to Florida state? Like, cause I know Jim having been, as he mentioned off camera, the uh, sports psychologist for a decade or so, at Arizona state university, a lot of those, you know, even with, a future NBA MVP who who we shan't mention, but uh, and other high level athletes sometimes that jump can be big, even if they've had you know years and years of structured sports experiences. And for you, you know, a bit of your junior year, then your senior year, and then bang, you're right into it. So, can you recall what, what that was like, just from a mindset perspective and lifestyle? 
Oh, I mean, I didn't, two a days, you know, volleyball, you start in August. So you're there before anyone's in school, except the football team. And they're, you know, on the field thrown up in garbage cans and you're having three workouts in a day. And, um, I was 17. I didn't turn 18 until my, my second semester in college. So I didn't, I wasn't sure I was going to pull it. And I don't, if you ask my teammates, I think there was probably an under and over of a, like a pretty right split down the middle. Like if I was actually going to make it, um, just cause I was so green, it was like, you know, but the interesting thing was I had, I came in with seven other freshmen on a 12 person team. So what that means is freshmen have to play. There was no luxury of like, Oh, they've got one or two freshmen and all the upperclassmen are going to take the load. So there was a different kind of thing on all of us, which was we had to play they needed the bodies. And so that was really helpful. And I remember being put into my first game and a middle is supposed to be like really in everybody's face and in their grill and touch every ball and do everything or just get involved and take up a lot of space. And I remember thinking, I just really didn't want to make a mistake and I wanted to stay out of the way my first game. And so um, obviously I had to transition from, from that. Um, The good thing about that age and that time though, is you can progress quickly. You know, when you're, when you're new at something, that's what Laird always talks about is he loves that improvement hockey stick period. And uh, maybe some of those people had that at 14, you know, where they sort of had these big jumps where they were significantly better in the end of the season from the beginning. Well, I I would have that in college and I would have that week to week. And I think that really excited me and turned me on. But it was always hard for me to claim my voice and kind of my space uh, because I I sort of always felt like an outsider who was interloping into this volleyball world. Yeah, it's interesting with uh, the um, conditioning piece. A lot of athletes reach out to me, you know, in college and say, I need help with the mental side of conditioning, um, which is kind of surprising, I think, for a lot of people that, haven't played college sports, how hard the conditioning can be and what an adjustment that is. But then also the talent level, it's, you know, a lot of athletes will call me and say, man, I, I don't think I'm as good as I thought I was. This is really hard. <laughs> you know, these, they, my, my teammates are really good. Um, and so you were thrown to the wolves right away because like you said, the team needed bodies. Um, that must've been, uh, you know, quite challenging playing in those, you know, playing games that, you know, it's a freshman, sophomore and so on. Um, Talk about confidence a little bit. Um, You know, (laughs) uh, confidence is a lot more fragile also than a lot of non, you know, elite athletes think. They think that, oh, you know, they're they're just born confident. These great athletes are always confident. Confidence takes a big hit, you know, when you start your career, but then also at the end of your career when you're dealing with injuries and age and all that kind of stuff. But, yeah, what was confidence like? And then I I would say uh, connection is a big piece too. Like you said, you didn't want to kind of – you know, stand out or screw up or getting in the way? And do I really, how, how, you know, do I really belong? And yeah, what, what are your thoughts on that? You know, for me, and also remember an only child and female, right? Like the best female athletes typically have a lot of brothers. They typically have, because they've learned the shorthand language of it's not personal and rough play early. And so I was an only child as a girl. So I'm, I, 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 I'm very good now at not taking anything personally, but I'm very literal. And so I think when you're in sport, it's like there's kind of gears on the court, off the court. And when you're on the court, it's like, hey, you know, F you and I'm going to kick your ass. And it's sort of like this other kind of person that even if you're being playful, um, it's rough play. And I didn't grow up with that. And boys do that because that's more their language. So they can go, I always say, if you ever watch female athletes to male athletes, female athletes, like, we're overmeasured, we overanalyze, we probably overtrain, we do everything because in some ways we're trying to get that gear more naturally of being uh, competitive, masculine, fired up, because it's we need that gear to do that thing. And guys can switch in and out of that gear quicker because it's an it's a intuitive language they have more testosterone, whatever the reasons they can go like, Oh, we're, we're going to kill each other now. Let's go. You know, it's like I had, you know, women have to kind of wind up. And a lot of times if they don't, they, they group, they probably grew up with brothers. It's just the way it is. Or, you know, like they played in the streets and like, you know, they just got that language earlier. Um, so I was not only doing that, but I was trying to figure out, 
um, how to insert myself into into my opponents and into my team because there's two places, right? You're sort of saying, I want you to listen to me. I'm telling you what I'm seeing, right, on the other side. And then, and then also it, it sort of trying to exert your will on your opponent. And that was really interesting for me. And I was the tallest person on my team at that time. Um, certainly we had other athletes come later. But so I think there's that expectation. You're big, you're tall. Um, and, and, um, and it was, that part was, was very, very challenging. However, I think my desire to listen and pay attention and, and, um, was really powerful and, uh, and to contribute. So I, I think that that, that desire to contribute was, was, was difficult. And as far as like aging and stuff and aging as an athlete, there's nothing like when you jump or run or something and you're not sure your body's going to support you. That is a very interesting thing on your psyche. Um, it's funny because living with Laird, he's been injured so much that he's almost gone past that. He's been able to fix everything. Nothing gets perfect, right? You, that's the other thing. You're, it's never like you're comparing it to something else. It's like, does it work? Does it work good enough? Good enough. And I think for a lot of athletes, when you first start getting injured, it's scary because you're thinking it should be go back to perfect and you're not sure. And you, instead of believing like, no, it's going to work and I'm going to figure it out. Cause that's the thing, right? You're always adapting. And, um, so as you get older, I mean, I have stuff right now going on with my hip and I'm like, well, I'll figure it out. I mean, I, Kelly already wrote me a note. Kelly starts like, Hey, I hear you have something going on with your hip. And I've already decided like, okay, I'll get an MRI. I've drugged my feet on that. And what's the worst thing that could happen? They're going to say, you need to get a hip replacement. Great. Whatever. It's like, you'll adapt. Um, but the injury part and building confidence, um, it's really interesting because you almost have to create a different part of your personality. And sometimes you have to override your nature. And that is interesting. Yeah, it's really, uh, I love what you just said in terms of that on the court, uh, what I call athlete arrogance. You need to have a sort of inner arrogance. It doesn't have to be, you know, bragging and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, this is my court. This is my house. I own the house. And, but, but, and, but why I call it an athlete arrogance is you don't want to bring that off the court because <laughs> then you're not going to have good relationships with anyone. Um, what did you, uh, you know, playing volleyball, uh, indoor and outdoor, uh, what did you learn most about teamwork and leadership? That's a topic near and dear to, to Phil and I in terms of, um, you know, creating a winning culture. And as you mentioned, it's kind of, you know, for a lot of female athletes that I've worked with, uh, a lot of times I'll hear, you know, man, if I, if I do really well, I think all the other girls on the team are going to hate me because I'm getting all the attention. But then if I don't do well, I feel like I've let everyone down. So it feels, it can feel like a lose-lose instead of a win-win. But um, yeah, just any thoughts, favorite thoughts on leadership and teamwork? Yeah, I heard a great story once. I had a coach named Gary Sato and Gary coached Marv, uh, uh, who was a, like a, just like one of the most famous men's um, volleyball coaches, Olympic volleyball coach, Coach Karch Karai, and all these guys that won all these gold medals. And he was a Pepperdine. And he's just like, a, like an incredible coach. He says, Gary was there as an assistant coach. He's looked at Marv. They were playing like in the Olympics and he looked at Karch and said to Karch, the ball's coming to you. You're going to put the ball away. We need two more points. Finish the game. Okay. And, and boom, they go out there. Karch goes, boom, boom, deals with it. It's done. Right. And Gary said he tucked it away for later. He's like, oh, I gotta, you know, one day I'm going to have that scenario. He did it. But to women, he picked out the girl. She kind of turned away a little, all the girl's body languages sort of turned away um, right. So, cause they're different cause she didn't want to be isolated and they were, they turned. So with the, with the leadership, it, it, it's, it's a tricky thing where you're not, um, I think you're not, it's harder when you're younger. I think in the pros, it's a little more straightforward. I think when you're at college, I think college, it is a lose, lose. I don't think there's any way to do it in college unless uh, maybe you take a, a team where if everyone is so driven and so, so kind of alpha, they're all just kind of driving at this point, then it's sort of a collective leadership and maybe you have one person in it who's sort of the, the real go-to, but that seems to work. And then once you get in the pros, we flushed out the one, the group that everybody gets sensitive and they go, listen, let's just win. But even within that um, dynamic, there was a very famous player, Kim, um, 
Kim Oden. And uh, she was about six, three or four, played at Stanford, very intelligent woman. She's the, one of the only female athletes I ever played against that I saw her have this really weird leadership. She was like very authoritative, uh, you know, kind of had this awesome, like she didn't make mistakes. And I don't mean on the, on the court, she didn't make mistakes as a person. She was very measured with her words. She was uh, very intelligent. She didn't, she wasn't gossiping. So she always created this weird distance between her and her team where she wasn't, she wasn't messy. So when she got on the court and she's like, I need you to do this with the ball. She had enough distance that it was almost like coach leader. Um, And then on top of it, she was, uh, you know, such a hammer. So that was sort of a different way where she was almost like player coach, but she wasn't hanging out and it wasn't, you know, it was just pretty, pretty business. And, and uh, there was a lot of respect, but I think it's very hard for women. Another thing that I heard that was really interesting about leadership more recently was Rich Devini wrote that book, 25 attributes. And he's like, look, leadership, it's really simple. It's total accountability. You have to be able to make a decision, even if it's the wrong decision Um, and your job is to create an environment in which everyone else can thrive and be their best. So you can say to one person, you're doing so good. You're going to put this ball away. Another person, it's like, yeah, just shut up and show me what you can do. Cause we're all different, right? Like, oh yeah. You know, it's like, we all have these languages, how we can talk and push each other. And he said, and, and the other thing is you're not allowed actually to say you're the leader. It's the people that are with you and you can say, Hey, I'm the team captain. I'm in charge of this space. I'm the commander, but the only people who can call you the their leader are the people who follow you. And so I thought that that was a really interesting distinction where it's sort of like be the leader and then they will sort of view you as the leader. But I think uh, for young women, it, uh, it can be tricky. Was there a particular teammate or two at Florida state that, you started to learn some things about either how to separate Gabby on the court from off the court, or that just kind of helped you along in that team environment that maybe they had been in for years and you were still kind of early in that learning curve. Yeah, I think I always, not until I became a junior was I sort of allowed to kind of, you know, that's just how it is. And again, there was a lot of us together. So we were sort of the collective leader, if you will, because we all had, been marching through since our freshman year. So it was more about showing up and being super intense and playing and performing. That was the most effective thing I could contribute um, and practicing hard. I wasn't so much a verbal leader. As far as the leaders before me, I had a setter. They None of them did it the way I would have done it. Uh, quite frankly, I had a, like one of my best player, my freshman year was the only senior we had, but she was totally silent. So she was more like a, an Island leader where she would go and kill a bunch of balls and not make mistakes, but she wasn't really sort of out there lifting everyone else up. Um, the following year I had a setter and setters. It's like a quarterback. They're pretty good to be leaders. Cause they, they're sort of touching every ball and everybody. And so she was pretty verbal and things like that. But my, not in college. I saw a lot of great leaders in the pros. Who was one in the pros that you looked at and was like, wow, yeah, she's got something. Um, well, I mean, there's in a way it's like, there's so many of them, you know, it's like, that's part of why they're there. And, um, and it's all about accountability to themselves and for them, for their actions. And then they might make a request of you, but it's not in the other way around. They're not telling you to come on. They're way harder on themselves than they are um, on on their teammates. Uh, so I think it was that. There was a player named Paula Weissoff where if she made an error, uh, you knew that the next ball she touched would be, uh, she would execute. It was just like a given. And you would even, they could telegraph it and you could try to stop her. And for whatever reason, it was just like, well, I'm only really going to make one mistake. Um, and so she led that way. And then you'd have others that were like super fired up. But again, it always started with themselves first. I used to have a joke about uh, Carrie Walsh that on the gold medal stand, as she's getting her medal, she's leaning over to Misty May saying she was apologizing for the offset at that eighth point. Um, And, you know, it's like, so it's, it's sort of that real, like, well, what am I doing? Um, 
But for women, it, I don't know why, and people can pretend that we're the same and that it's all the same. It is very, very tricky. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what about when it came to coaches? You mentioned a couple of coaching examples, but whether it was the head coach in college or maybe an assistant or maybe a recent player who'd made a transition to the bench, um, or perhaps it wasn't until he got to the pros, was there a coach either just life development stuff and, and learning how to find your way in the world or, or on court or maybe a bit of both? Was there, was there one or two people that stood out there as that kind of coach mentor role for you? Yeah, well, certainly because I was young, the best technical coach I ever had was the gentleman I mentioned earlier, Gary Sato, his whole family. He had two, he was an Olympic coach, his siblings, two siblings, um, Leanne and Eric, they both played on the national teams. This was a volleyball family. Uh, his understanding of the game, his ability to execute was sort of astounding. My college coach, uh, Cecile Renaud, was um, an incredible coach for me. Um because of the life lessons I learned, her organization. She was one of the best public speakers I've ever personally seen, even to this day. And I've seen a lot of people speak. Um, she was funny. She also, and whether people like this or not, even though she was a woman, female coach, her delivery system was male. So it was, hey, if she was, if she would just be like, hey, that's not good enough. And I think for me, in that environment, I really responded to that. And like one time my freshman year, we were leave, we were coming from the NCAA tournament against uh, University of Texas. I think they, I don't even know if they broke a sweat. They killed us so quickly. And they had won the, they won the NCAAs that year. They were astounding. They were under a guy named McHaley, who then became the national uh, team coach. But they were serious. And so we were in the airport waiting to fly. So she calls one by one because that's the end of our season and kind of review it and then talk about stuff. So she, she goes, okay, Gabby, can you come here? And I walk up, it's my freshman year. I'm getting my ass kicked all over the place. And she goes, so um, it's my understanding that um, you're not, you haven't been going to like your biology class. You, you mean like the one with 1500 people in it? Okay. And I, and I was like, yeah, she goes, um, so I just want to know um, if I need to get a new metal blocker or if you're going to take care of that. And I was like, I'll take care of it, coach. And she goes, okay, dear, thank you. Um, personal accountability. And that was it. But what I will say that I know is really true and important for all coaches. And I, have a, I just recently had a couple guys here from the NFL training. And we were talking about this. If a coach knows what they're doing for real, if they understand the game, that's number one. Number two, if they show you they care more about you as a person than you as an athlete, you'll go through a wall for them. And what my coach in college did, she showed me time and again, without words, um, that she cared first about me as a person. And so what happens is you've just made me a 10 times soldier for you and the mission, not less. And I think if coaches, even at the pro level, because the complaint from my friend was in the NFL, it's like, there's no way it's about, they try to act like they're in charge and their figures and all this stuff. And they're worried about themselves. If you, especially a violent sport like football, if you could actually tell your athletes that you gave, you cared about them as a person, because what they're doing is already difficult. Being in a sport, going to practice, training, it's a gift and they get paid and it's great and it's really hard. And they're, and they're hurt and their head and they're this bone and that and injury and all this stuff. If your coach, when you're out there, knows what they're talking about and then they care about you, it's pretty hard to beat that combination. Yeah, that's a strong one too, for sure. Um, at what point in, in college, so you mentioned, you know, the fresh, freshman year, in your words, you were getting killed all over the place, but yet you're being modest in some ways. If you look back at your overall career, when you're, you you start setting some of these records, some of which may still stand in you obviously figured it out. Um, was there a particular switch that got flipped or was it just progression that snuck up on you <laughs> kind of what Pavel calls the the what the hell effect of doing kettlebell swings and get-ups regularly and just putting in the reps yeah it, I think it was over time and then also what happened is after my sophomore year of competing I gave up my scholarship and I paid to play and then my coach released me from spring training so I could go to New York and work. So I was in the fashion business because what I was trying to do is also support myself and I could make more money at that time in fashion than I, and pay for my school than just be on scholarship. 
And it was NCAAs at that time, it was messy. You don't want to be like on the cover of a magazine. And then other coaches, like when I would go to tournaments, would be complaining like, well, how is she doing that and this and all of that? So what happened was now I also had something to prove. So I think what happened in my progress was my teammates were not particularly nice about me not being at spring training. And I would go to summer school to be, to take enough classes to be eligible to play. So I was taking you know, 12 or 15 hours in my season and then nine or 12 hours in summer school, but spring was mine. And I was traveling all around the world and trying to like still train and stay in shape. Don't get too big. Cause then I can't fit in any clothes and modeling, but then don't get out of shape because then when I go back to school, I just get killed. Right. So there, the ability to focus got better. And so, and, and I, then I started to, so I already had something to prove because I was so late to the game. And now I had this other thing to prove that I was a serious athlete. And it was really interesting um, because, you know, my team, my teammates, some of them could smell the blood in the water for sure. And they would circle around, especially if they weren't playing and what I'm stepping in and playing, it's like, well, what, that's not fair. And and I felt that too. I was like, it isn't fair. Um, But if we had a run, a longer run, I would always have to finish first. Cause it was like, I was trying to say to them over and over like, Hey, I'm here to work. I am here. Um, but it, that part I think might've uh, sort of helped me really focus in even more. Yeah. That's yeah. a pretty, pretty unique approach. Um, what did you learn about yourself from, from that modeling experience and kind of juggling, you know, so you've got for the average student athlete, right, Jim, <laughs> the thousands that you've canceled over the years, just juggling one sport and school and being in a new place is, you know, challenging. Um, you've got this kind of late development in terms of coming to the game formally late. And then you, you've added in this new wrinkle that you're fully driving yourself and trying to figure out yourself. Firstly, how did you manage to juggle it all? And secondarily, just how did your personality develop during that time um, with with all the other things that were going on? It was in ways probably agreeable to my personality because it gave me something to really put my teeth into. And um, and I think I probably like that. Uh, and, and and listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say one part of it that I know is true. There's a part of this is that's the fuzzy part that's like, this is my destiny. This was my path. And so in looking back, because there's otherwise no way, right? Like, how am I going to live in New York City? And then one day from one, I'm like at the fanciest studio shooting for Vogue magazine. The next day I'm in a gym in Tallahassee, Florida, sweating my ass off, you know. So part of this is a bigger thing than me. And I was just a piece in this story. Um, But I could really be clear and be focused. Like, what am I doing right now? And consistency. So even if I was tired and it was... January in New York city, I came home, I washed my makeup off and I went to the gym. And, um, and, and the good thing for me is I'm, I am social, but I'm not a partier. So, um, that never was a problem. I was never distracted, uh, with things that weren't feeding into the greater story, uh, of my mission. And, and the other thing that it did for me was I really trusted myself because this was my path. No one was doing it. I didn't have somebody who was doing this this way at that time. And in fact, I would get pressure from my fashion people being like, okay, then you just disappear for five months and go play volleyball, you know, and all your work comes out in magazines and then people are calling for you and then you're not available. And then I'd go back around and do it all again and like take all these pictures and do all this stuff. And then by the time the stuff would come out, because remember this is a long time ago, it was three months later. And then when they see your picture, someone's excited, Oh, she's not available. She's playing volleyball. And so what, the, what it did was I followed myself. Uh, I listened to what I wanted to do. And I knew that the athletics felt really good to me, even though it was hard. It felt really true to, to my spirit. And I understood the importance of the opportunity of, of uh, making a living and, and being in fashion and traveling, right? Like I was traveling the world. I worked with high, like the best people in these jobs and um, I was getting something, but it was, yeah, it was definitely an education. And it was like pretty grown up, you know? Yeah, great, great example of self-leadership. And, and I love what you said, just to rewind a little bit in terms of, you know, leadership in general. Can I make you better? Uh, do you really care about me, you know, as a person, you know, and can I trust you? And, you know, if you can 
uh, answer yes to those three questions, your players are, you know, if your players can answer yes to those three questions, you, you've got it made. And, you know, and that's more important than the X's and O's, I think. Uh, now, uh, and yeah, and I love your self-leadership. Everyone wanted a piece of you. And you're like, what do I want? And and you had the courage to follow your goals and your dreams. And, and, and that's just a, a, a great metaphor for everyone. Um, you know, what do you really, really want? Because you knew what you were good at. You knew what was fun for you. And you knew what, what was meaningful. So I think that's pretty impressive at such a young age. Well, you know, it's, sometimes when you're thrown into it, right, you, you adjust. And I think that's what I always in, encourage younger people is stop looking outside Cause I will have younger female athletes go like, well, I want to do it like what you did. I go, I did what I did. What do you, who are you and what do you want to do? And because we always trying to copy something that's happened. And I think the important thing is that we really stay true to that inner, you know, drive and that weird gut feeling and sensation. I say that as a parent, I tell my girls that I go, listen, there's things you know and see about your life that I don't. My job is to support you. I don't know all the little callings that we get in our head and our gut that push us in these directions or, and, um, and to, and to encourage them because it's your life. It's your blueprint. It's, it's your, it's your expression. Yeah. It's really cool that you see those echoes all those years later. Um, I guess to fast forward to what you just brought us into now, you know, the, the challenge of parenting these girls and, you know, obviously led trod his own path too. So what are some of the current insights into just these, um, having going from having to lead yourself, um, to having to lead these, these people, but yet let them lead themselves to some degree. Is, is that just a continual balancing act for you both? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's way harder than everything else because it feels certainly like the most important thing. I mean, you can risk yourself and um, with parenting, it, it certainly feels like the most serious thing you're ever going to do. And, um, and you're not objective and um, you, you sometimes secretly don't realize you have these biases and things you're trying to implement on them. And you're, you know, it's sort of like, I remember making a rule like manipulation was off the table and so as a parent, right, so, so even especially when your kids are younger, you could kind of lean on them and manipulate them. And, you know, and I was like, no, because I'm going to hope to model for them so that that's not a tool that they use, uh, especially girls. I have three daughters in their life. Right. Um, but it, I would say in certain things, it was easier for Laird and I because we were on a there was no expectation and we don't put expectation on our girls. But the fact that we live in a world where there's an external dialogue back at us about what some of the stuff we've done, that creates an expectation uh, on some, the more sensitive ones. I have one that doesn't seem to be impacted by that at all. She seems to like not care and have her own thing, but she also rebels in a way that, you know, like, Hey, I don't want to do sports. You did that. And for me, it's funny, like this particular kid, gets straight A's in school, is very bright, doesn't really get in trouble. But I'm like, oh, I have to check myself because I was like, I would almost be like, oh, we're more successful if she just got C's but was like crushing it in athletics. Because that's my trip. That's what saved me. Like, right, maybe she doesn't need to do that muscle head stuff. Maybe she's like way down the road. And I just say, hey, then you'd have to have a practice where you at least know how to take care of yourself. Get outside, move your body. Um, so I have to check my own biases because that was my experience. And, uh, and, and maybe my girls don't need that. And, and somebody pointed that out. They go, listen, can you say, cause we, we think, Hey, we're together. Our house is clean. We have opportunities for them. What's the problem? And someone said, yes, but they didn't have you. They have a different set of things they have to navigate because they have two parents that have at least in some artificial way, been successful. And so it's like really honoring because we as parents all go like, well, I had it better than you have it better than me. But it's like, we don't know what the, what gets told back to them. Um, so I think it's checking, it's listening. You do a lot of listening. And in the moments that they're non-compliant, you stop and you think 50% of the reason I'm here and 90% of the reason Laird's where he is, is because we are non-compliant. And uh, so how do we just make that so that they don't 
they can function within the world, but actually to secretly covet that they have the strength to push against you and, you know, whatever you're pushing down on them. You know, as long as it's not like, hey, telling the truth is important. It's like, well, no kidding. You know, so it's like on the other stuff, when they kind of buck against you secretly, you have to be like, okay, that's actually a great thing. And, um, and be a good example. Like if you want them to be polite, be polite. It's like, it's not rocket science because they will, they will. That, that's another gem right there is be, be, a, be a fine example of what it means to be vitally involved in life. Yeah. You know, and, and I think a lot of parents forget that. And that is so important. Um, in terms of kind of parenting leadership, self-leadership, I think there's times where we're encouragers. There's times where we're, uh, you know, more enforcers. Uh, and then times where we're more, we need to be leaders by example. It seems like you guys have a nice mix of all three. Yeah. And as the older they get, enforcing is kind of, you know, futile. <laughs> well, Resistance is futile. It is. It's like, you know, that in which right we, we resist persists. So I, uh, I it's interesting because when you, when you think you're so strong, you know, and uh, all these things, the whole art of not using it and pulling way back most of the time is sort of, I think where both Laird and I are at, which is the art of self-restraint in all these areas, right. In um, interactions with people on a day to day, um, especially now, you know, we live in a world where people are very quick to, to sort of be aggressive. But if you were like, cool, I'm going to poke your bubble now, they'd all cry really quick. And we come from a different way. And so it's just kind of a learning to observe and, um, give everyone enough space to do it the way they need to do it. Um, because sometimes, especially when you have a, a like a lean in can be aggressive, uh, capacity, um, you have to not do that. Um, and just, and just kind of pull back. And, and that was the other thing, you know, that we learned from somebody that said, Hey, in parenting, you, if you could listen to your kids without solving their problems, and show them a little bit about what happiness looks like, that would be a really good thing to do so they know what it looks like. No, I love that. Um, one of the things that back when I was still writing for you guys at XPT, I, I think we did a post together and it's talking about a lot of different things, but, but you had mentioned that you, you like to go first and sometimes set the tone. So whether it, it's smiling at someone when you first walk in a room or whatever it might be, could you dive into that a little bit for us? Yeah, I think for me as a kid, you know, I was six feet at 12 and six foot three at 15. So the minute I walk into any room, typically I was noticed and it was really uncomfortable. I didn't love it. And you realize there's a lot of people who go through things that they're uncomfortable. But when you're 15, you're like, I'm the only one. And um, then what I started doing is I became a little more self-assured, probably by like 18 or 19, is I was like, well, screw it. If I when I come into a room or I walk by somebody, if they're going to notice me, I'm going to say hello. And I'm going to smile and I'm going to be the one willing to take something that could be uncomfortable and make it okay. And because it also maybe could have been a mechanism for me to flip the attention differently. And it, and then it becomes a, a bigger reminder back that um, it's, it's a nice way to go through life. If you're willing to say to somebody, Hey, how's your day going? Or say hello first. Um, because it's just like you're sprinkling humanity out throughout your day. And, um, and it just is an upcycle and it does make you less afraid of everything and everyone when you just cut all the lines quickly, just go like, Hey, how's it going? I really like that. Um, something else that I saw fairly recently, a lot more recently than that one is that's probably been three or four years since we put that particular piece out. But, um, I think it was that the surfer Bethany Hamilton has a, a mindset course on her website and she featured you in that. And, something I like that you said in there was um, the importance of taking stock of your thoughts regularly and trying to carve out space and time to do that. And then obviously from, from the only way we can self-regulate better, as you mentioned a minute ago with restraint is to be more self-aware. So could you share a little bit more about the, you know, how, how you put that into practice of taking stock of your thoughts? Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to, I'll connect it to, you know, so I was doing an interview and some, the guy goes like this to me, he goes, you know, you seem really humble. And I go, I'm not really humble. I know the laws of the universe and I don't need to learn those lessons. 
that's not humility. That just shows a level of like, hey, if you're a schmuck, it's going to be schmucky. If you're cool, it's usually cooler. And so it doesn't come from humility. It comes from taking a perspective on life and sort of seeing patterns and going, huh, this seems to keep showing up. So it's the same with checking in where, and I do this a lot. And because I am a more analytical person, it was a, it's a, it's a natural reflex for me um, is like, how am I feeling? How's the relationship? You know, whether I'm like in a shower, in a car, it's really always understanding how I'm feeling because then also it gives me an opportunity. Like I'll give you an example. I just came from a trip. I went to Austin for a day. Everything in the trip went wrong. My first flight was two hours late. Um, the, when I got to the hotel, uh, the room was canceled. Um, when I went to the event, there were things, the technical parts weren't working. It was just like one thing after the next, after the next. Right. And so as a person of, you know, my age, uh, if I was 20, I might be like, Oh, and just reacting dung, 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 to everything. But when the first thing shows up, you're like, okay, I see it. And then the second thing and the third, and you go, all right, what is the world and the universe telling me? What do I need to understand here? Because something is happening. And if I just react, I'm not going to actually figure out what I'm supposed to understand to do. And it was getting my attention and I wanted to be mad and I really wanted to fire off on some people. I did inside. I was like, this is bullshit. I'm too old for this. Like, why am I dealing with this? Like, you know, it's like, cause I am, it's like, I've been doing this. And I was like, don't be that foolish, pay attention. And there was opportunities. I needed to clear, I need to tighten some things up in our work life. I need to clear some decks politely, but it was like, oh, we're going to squeeze you so that you, 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 uh, you reorganize a couple of things. So it's a great opportunity. So I think for me, it's not about reacting. It's about understanding what I'm feeling uh, unless, and I'm getting to the place where I'm trying uh, unless I'm like really tired and out of sorts. Cause then, you know, you kind of go Ooh, um, to observe things and then say, okay, what what's happening here? Yeah, composure's composure's one of the uh, the the C's that Phil and I talk about. We talk about confidence and concentration and composure and commitment, and then obviously competitiveness, which uh, you're very high on. Um, yeah, I love the idea that cool heads win hot games, and so I'm sure that helped you with as a player. You know, instead of you know responding like a champion, instead of just reacting to whatever's going on around you, and then uh, you obviously are doing that well and, and working hard on that, you know, in everyday life. Uh, but that's just a great example of how we could just go, Oh, this is just a mess where you're like, okay, what's the message in this mess? And then how can I respond in a way that, you know, with, with wisdom um, in, instead of just acting out. Um, and then you turn that negative into a positive. Like, how can I, I love how you just said that. How do I tighten things up? to, you know, so that next time this is different or better. Yeah. And it doesn't mean like, you you know, you, we all have had friends or maybe we personally experienced where it's like all of a sudden, like a parent's sick and a dog dies and some weird stuff happens. Okay. That's just stuff to ride out. But when it's like a little funky, weird stuff and conflict with people at work or friends or just too much weird, it's like, okay. And it, that's about slowing it down and reacting less, but acknowledging like, Oh, I'm, I think I'm pissed right now. Like I'm kind of pissed and I could, you know, sort of blast everybody, but that's not, that's not the move. The move is to say like, Oh, I'm pissed. I wouldn't do it that way. Um, how did I get myself in this situation? And then it's to go, all right, what is it I need to learn? Because I don't want to have life sticking. It's holding its foot on my head. I want to be moving freely and, and smoothly so the minute you feel something on your neck, it's like, hey, why? Yeah, I love the honesty, the self-honesty. Yeah, I'm pissed right now, but, you know, is that going to serve me? And then, and then, you know, the ability to pivot and, you know, and, and, and turn it around into something different or better, um, I think is key. And ego, you know, listen, it's always being aware. Like, it's like even me saying like, hey, I've been doing this too long. Like, duh, duh, duh. it's like some of this is intertwined with ego, no matter what. And I need in some of that ego to go out there and try to do it. But it's like, you just have to understand that that thing's always alive and it's participating in the reaction. 
so it's kind of like being aware of that too. Great point. Yeah, we uh we had Patrick McKeown on as as our episode one, and uh, obviously you and Led have worked pretty closely with him at XPT over the years. Is part of that transitioning from the automatic reaction, like ah, oh, you put your hand on your, you know, the stove or something by accident when you're cooking. Well, that's that's a reaction that we all need to draw your hand away, but maybe not so good in some scenarios. Um, to to more in everyday life, responding rather than reacting. Is the breath a, a key part of that? Since you've been working with Patrick and kind of building that in. Yeah, I think you can use it as a tool to quickly downregulate, and also when people are checking in with themselves. I think those long, you know, nose, that long nose breathing pattern can connect you quicker and deeper to the feelings and the thoughts to, to sort of be like, well, let me slow down. What's going on here? I wonder why this is happening. Is something showing up? Like you can ask also, like, why is this happening? And information will come to you. You will get information you'll have an instinct or something will arrive that is showing you why it's happening or who you need to have a communication with. I think that's true. You know, it's like for people who are religious, when they say, you know, ask and the answers come, I, I, I really believe that that is just a universal truth where when it's going on, it's like when you can use that deep breath and also check in simultaneously, um, it sort of gives you that pause and, and leads, maybe your net, your next move is the right move. Right. I think it helps to like, when I do make a move or say a word or ask a question, this will maybe give me a little space and distance to do it the right way. Yeah. Yeah, Slowing down is obviously important in volleyball, Uh, (laughs) slowing the game down, you know, by doing the same thing. Uh, But yeah, I love that, that we tend to, when we're feeling a lot of stress and pressure, we tend to speed everything up in our head. And so I like what you guys are talking about is slowing things down, taking that deep breath, hitting the pause button, not the panic button. Yeah. And I think the other thing that's interesting and nobody, I mean, it's not that nobody talks about it, but everyone perceives like loudness, toughness, you know, all of this is like, it's sexy and popular. What I'm talking about is not particularly sexy. You know, it's not like, it's a quiet thing. And um, just getting comfortable with all, it's like you're doing a million things in that one moment and nobody knows and nobody's seeing it. And that's the whole point, right? Like it's for you. But I just want to be clear and remind people, like when you lose your mind and you freak out and you have a conflict, people know, they see it. It's right there. It's, it's dynamic. It's like all these things. So be clear to, to go slow and to try to be concise and to, and to try to use as few words as possible and to be, stay as loving as possible. This is quiet stuff. Yeah. Can can you talk a little bit about what you've said in the past about making time to invest in in the hidden hours, in the quiet practices? Because as you said, we're, our society is focused so much on this kind of microwave or Amazon Prime instant gratification. It's also outward projection a lot of the time, um, what people put out there on the socials or whatever else. Talk to us a little bit about how you're able to practically make time um, prioritize some of those, not even necessarily the hidden hours, but the hidden moments and try to keep up with this kind of thing regularly when the world seems to be moving so quickly around us. It's all, you know, I always say the same discipline it takes to go and train and not eat an entire bag of potato chips is the same discipline it takes to, to walk in that, in that more quiet, non-reactive way. Um, I think it's about, again, when you talk about self-leadership, it's, I'm, I would like Laird to really respect me and I would like to respect myself. And so I, I'm using that as the gauge, let's say, because we know how we've handled something and I'm just trying to peel it back and keep that as still and quiet as possible. So one way of doing that obviously is my self-care practice, but there's not a lot of extra, you know, it's like we go to bed pretty early. Um, we, again, that quiet kind of non woo life and, and over time, right. People look at our life and think it's 
you know, it's shiny, but it's, it's still pretty quiet. And there's a lot of like work and like all these things that, so then the whole thing comes together and it looks pretty shiny, but it's being willing to actually um, do the work and keep it simple. Um, which for me personally, and everyone is different, that sort of leads me and gives me that space and time to do it, to have the time with the girls, to have the time for my work, to have the time for my relationship. But if I'm spending all this time thinking about how can I be more relevant? How could I get more likes how, or views or whatever? Um, I rather talk about like uh, in those kinds of questions, how can I grow my business? Um, how could I, you know, so it's, it's trying to stay focused. That's why I think it's important to have really good challenges in your life, that those are the things you can, you can put your teeth into versus, do you like me? Do you like me? Is that enough? It's like, no, let's take this thing and let's grow this. Okay. Let's take our bodies and take care of that. Um, and that gives you a different satisfaction. But again, this goes back to quiet. You know, if, if it's just a different way of doing it. Yeah. Do you think in some ways that you benefited from coming up from, you know, what we talked about earlier? So, you know, the teenage years and through college and through your early career without all of the external focus that there is now. And as you said, you put something out there and it immediately comes right back like a boomerang. What 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 are your thoughts there kind of reflecting on then and now and not to not that we're all going to sit around, you know, all in the same stage of life as parents of multiple kids and say, oh, it was better back in my day, but it was certainly different though, right? Yeah, it's very different. And I give them, and I always tell young adults, give yourself some grace because it's a hard, you're, you are growing up in a much harder world than we are for different reasons. Yes, great, you can Uber Eats and your food can show up at the door, but it's still harder. And I think because they don't get that time and space to go, who am I? What am I feeling? Who do, who do I like being around? They're just blasted nonstop. And imagine trying to develop as a human being simultaneously getting constantly blasted with input. Um, and so I really feel for them uh, because it's, I, I couldn't imagine it. It's easy for me to go stand by myself in a corner. You know, it's like no problem. I, that's how I grew up. Um, and, and no expectations were put on me. And, and also people weren't never commented about how I looked. They, I mean, how, you know, like, Oh, you're pretty. It's like they commented I was giant. And so none of that had real currency with me when it did show up, you know, and somebody asked me that question. I did an interview yesterday and the guy goes, Oh, well, when someone comes up to you and says like, it's because of you, like inspired me. And I said, you know, listen, here's the deal. It's not me. I'm a, I'm an actor in the play, just like the two of you, and I'm just doing my part. And if my part activates another person, um, that actually doesn't have to do with me. That's their response to whatever this part is. So I think also creating a little distance from what we think who we are and what we're creating. And I did this. No, it's like, hey, you, lucky you. You got to fill that spot. And um, and represent that. And like, I've, I've done that in my twenties, I sort of filled one spot and then I moved and I filled another spot. And what I want to say to people is if you recognize opportunity and you take it when it shows up and you also take care of it, you will have more and you will have it longer. And if it's something you think you have done, it will be gone. Well, that's a really good point on the topic of sustainability in terms of self-sustainability right because otherwise it's just if you're just trying to go greatest hit to greatest hit or to think life is going to be linear like you said you see it's important to have these bigger goals and challenges and projects and things that you focus your time on but unfortunately there are going to be detours and there are going to be a lot of uh, there's going to be a lot of time spent on the plateau so to speak and I think that that's sometimes the the founder's myth or the startup myth that we get told when we look at an Elon Musk or a Zuckerberg or whoever, you know, or pick a celebrity that, you know, that their story gets so sanitized and simplified that you just say, oh yeah, it was just point A to point B to point C. But life really works like that, at least looking back in hindsight over everything we talked about today, right? 
Right. And also I'll, I'll put on, I'll kick out an extension on that idea, which is if we all really thought about it or spent one week doing it, point Z, who could actually handle what Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk are handling? And people think, oh, I want the money in the boat. It's like, no, 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 no. Do you understand what has to get handled? And most people would unravel in 48 hours. And so that's the other thing I want to remind people. They're geared for it, hardwired, set up. Every tendency, every trait is geared towards whatever that thing that they're doing. And let me tell you, the price to pay for it is as big as whatever the upside is. And people don't understand that. And it's like, hey, it's sort of like when they say, hey, do you want your problems or, you know, someone else's problems? I think we glamorize it. I think that's why it's about getting re-in-touch with who I am, because we can then be doing the things that we can handle and be successful in that way. But it's like, oh, I want that life. Do you? Do you know what that is? Do you know what the sacrifice is? Do you know what the collateral damage is? It's no joke. Yeah, just even uh, working with so many pro athletes through the years, just the travel, being away from family and kids and, you know, I mean, just that in and of itself is, is you know, a grind. And, and as you're talking about, too, just all the grunt work involved, you know, people just see the glitter. Yeah. Um, I know that you, uh, uh, you you got into golf big time um, <laughs> and, and you, you kind of had to make a tough decision there. Like, I don't have all the time in the world to keep pursuing this because of kids and whatnot and family. Uh, so there's always tough choices to make, but tell tell us a little bit about the golf adventure. That's I, I, I love the idea that champions take chances, and you took a big chance there. I love that. So in my 30s, I got a, an invitation. Someone's like, we'll pay you to train this style of golf because golf, the IP on golf is big, right? You, in no other sport can you make as much money on IP as golf, right? Because I always say it's the beautiful woman that eludes you. It's like the rich guys can buy anything. They can't buy a golf swing. Like, it's there for three days. It doesn't show up. Then they have an 18 year old caddy that drives it by him 50 yards. You're like, what the hell? I have the best clubs, you know, whatever. So I think that was the appeal. But for me, what I was like, I was like, wow, this would be an interesting thing where I could now recommit my focus into something that I could do much later in life than volleyball. And that's what interests me. Here's what I learned. Um, besides practice in the short game. Um, anytime you set up the goal, the outcome, before the actual discovery process, you've already failed because I didn't even know if I liked golf and I was going to say, okay, I'm going to try to get my, my card. That was it. That was the goal. Just see if you could get your card. And on the men's side, it seems more of an impossibility than on the women's side. Okay. But I didn't even explore. Do I like golf? Hmm. I fell into volleyball. I developed a relationship with volleyball. The love grew. I got better. I went from a B and C. I reverse engineered the golf and that was one of my biggest mistakes. Um, but it was the most humbling, uh, pretty tough, pretty brutal. And it was hard to say, I can't do all of this. That was a hard thing. Cause it's admitting like you can't. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. We're always one shot away from getting humbled in golf and it's uh, and, and two shots away from going crazy. <laughs> it's such yeah. a tough sport. I oh, love what you said. You can't, you could buy anything pretty much, but a golf game. No, you can't. I don't care who you are. I don't I care love that. who you are because, and, and I love, like, like I said, I'd see these caddies who are just like, Oh no, no, no. And, and they just were golfers. And you see these other guys who are just like, I don't understand. And it's like, that's right. And, and um, I think for me, it was a really valuable lesson um, about, you know, loving something and, and following that. And not, it's not, it can't be about outcome first. It's the same with starting a company. You can't be like, well, we'll be rich. It's like, okay, well, that can't, that can't be the starting point. Yeah, that's a really powerful lesson. Um, we want to be respectful of your time, Gabby. So in closing, um, we asked Led if there was a, a big idea that he wanted to get out to the world, or maybe a, a small idea that could be have some big impact on a few people and, and what he told us was just two words pay attention and then he riffed on that a little bit is there anything you've been percolating on recently that maybe you haven't shared as much publicly or maybe you have and you just want to emphasize it that that you might want to leave people with in terms of mindset or just anything else that's that's on your heart or on your mind 
I mean, it's funny. I told you I was traveling yesterday, and I, what I said is I, uh, something interesting I'm observing is half the people in the world now think they're famous. No, I'm not kidding. It's really weird. I mean, we used to have it always. Like, you'd have, like, you were in your high school, and you were the best on the whatever, and then you were in the newspaper, and so you thought you were important. And then you went to college, and you got another dose of that. And, and the thing is, is that even going through it that way, like I went through it that way a little bit, you get, you learn some stuff that equips you to realize it's silly. And it's just an extension of like, if that is your job, lucky you, right? But what's happening that I see is that they think it's real. And my only thing I would say to people is invest in your real life in the truest way, because as you go through the ups and downs in life, the things that really get you through it are those real relationships is that um, real practice that you have in place. You know, is it, it doesn't mean you have to go like and be a, you know, professional athlete style of training, but enough of a relationship with your body and movement and nature and, um, and something that you really love because it all can get hard at one point or another. And if it's always about that external feedback constantly, when you're done, it's nothing. And I just see it. So it's, I guess I would say like invest in your, in yourself and your, your life, because um, that's all we're going to be with anyway. You know, like you, you could win a world series or NBA final championship still in the end. That's what we're left with. Yeah, real life rather than projected pseudo life, maybe. It's exhausting. I don't know how they do it. And <laughs> and I really want to encourage people because when you have somebody that looks at you and they're like, I really love you, and you develop those kinds of relationships or you can move your body or you're not looking for someone to be like approving you, then you have some freedom. And my my thing is, and I said this about my children, the one thing about me is I just want to be free and I'm already not free, right? I have a belief system. I have a narrative. I have all these things that are getting thrown on me that impact my belief system. And I, even though I don't realize it, it's like, how can I try to just be free? And, um, and the, you know, that helps because it's already almost impossible. I love that. Well, thanks so much, Gabby. You've been really generous, not just with your time, but with your insights today. And we'd, Love to have you back and run a part two because we missed about 25 years in the middle there, but it was fun to, to dive in deep with with uh, some of your beginnings and then to catch up with, with more of what's going on now and just really appreciate you and the time you spent with us today. Oh, well, thank you. And I appreciate what you what you guys are drilling down on and, and uh, because you don't have to be in athletics. Um, what you're saying and talking about is universal human stuff, What so you can bring it into the workplace and stuff and and relationships. So I really appreciate that because I feel like the more we can support each other in those sort of quiet, unsexy messages, um, then we can really be badass. And that's the thing. People are so interested in being badass. It's like, you want to be badass? Well, it's different than you think. Yeah. yeah. Do the I, real work, focus on the things that are truly important, not clicks, likes, views, followers. Thanks, Gabby. For I, I think you provided everyone with a, a blueprint for how to be an enlightened badass. <laughs> so well, thank you so much. Thanks, you guys. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends about the Champion Conversations podcast and rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your platform of choice. You can also follow Jim on Twitter at Gold Medal Mind. Go out and be a champion today, and we'll see you back here next week.